Well, good morning. It's good to be here among my church friends and family. And uh, this weekend, Pastor Rock and Pastor Blaine left for a cruise somewhere down in the Caribbean. Uh, so be in prayer for them. Uh, I'm not sure how you pray for people that are on a cruise. <laughs> Maybe that they wouldn't overeat. How about that one, huh? Uh, kidding aside, uh, those guys are in need of our prayers. It really wasn't that long ago that Pastor Rock suffered a heart attack, and uh, Pastor Blaine uh, had his heart surgically repaired, uh, and also Pastor Rock and, and recently is uh, overseeing the care of his grandchildren and so forth, and at his age, he requires a lot of endurance uh, to be able to do in that. So please be in prayer for those guys and Pastor Ross as they lead us, because the devil always wants to attack our leadership. And so they're vulnerable, so please be in prayer. Well, it's, it's an honor uh, to be here today. It's a testimony to the goodness of God, but not only that, but because uh, he continues to permit me to minister and serve on his behalf. And it's a privilege, a tremendous privilege for me to be here to present the word of God to you today. So let's get started. Well, we're just about halfway through our study in the book of Acts. And up to this point, we've read about and examined some pretty spectacular and extraordinary events as we've seen the Holy Spirit move in miraculous ways. For example, back in chapter 2, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which was a supernatural manifestation and equipping of the saints with power and boldness that ushered in a new era and set in motion a new covenant that's based upon grace that superseded the old covenant that was based upon obedience to the law. And we've seen miraculous prison breaks and healings. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 5, uh, it tells us the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And signs and wonders that not only authenticated their ministry, but also their message that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. And then there's my personal favorite, the stunning conversion of Saul, something that nobody ever saw coming at that time, especially Saul. In fact, Saul's conversion was so miraculous and so remarkable, he had to work overtime to convince Peter and the other apostles that his conversion was authentic, that it wasn't some kind of a trick or a hoax. And so it's important to note that sometimes God accomplishes his purposes using extraordinary signs and wonders that are evident for not only believers to see, but even unbelievers. But the reality is, most of the time, he doesn't. And it's with this in mind that I want to take a look at the end of chapter 14, specifically verses 21 and 22. Because this passage characterizes our primary mission as citizens of the kingdom. And that mission is accomplished in the trenches, in enemy territory. And it seldom includes applause or recognition. And in fact, it often attracts opposition. Now to set the stage, Paul and Barnabas were just about to complete their first missionary journey. And that was no small feat. They were initially launched from the church at Antioch of Syria about one year earlier to carry the message of the gospel to the unsaved people of the Roman world. And they were making their way back to Antioch to share everything that God had done through them. 
and they had much to tell. And we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of chapter 14, and you can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia, where they strengthened the believers. They encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And I've entitled today's message, Kingdom Trenches. Please join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to proclaim your word. But I got nothing. Therefore, I need a fresh equipping, a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit so that I can preach and proclaim your word in boldness and power. And it's with great expectation that I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. It's often said that football games are won or lost in the trenches, at the line of scrimmage. The quarterbacks, the receivers, the running backs, they garner most of the highlight film on ESPN. But a team's ability to impose its will on their opponent and emerge victorious often comes down to how well they execute in the trenches. Wars also are typically fought in the trenches. Air and naval support garner the spotlight there and can help turn the tide in any conflict, but it's boots on the ground boots in the trenches that make the real difference. And kingdom work is much the same way because it too is primarily executed in the trenches where the work is tough and the signs and wonders are few. And it can be difficult and inconvenient and often go unnoticed. But the work in the trenches is vital to the success of the kingdom. And it all begins with a firm understanding and commitment to the mission itself. And Paul and Barnabas knew that because they understood their mission was to make disciples. And they never wavered from that mission, regardless of the life-threatening circumstances that frequently opposed them inside the trenches. Making disciples was their primary objective. That's what they set out to do. And that's why the local church in Antioch equipped them and sent them. In fact, when you boil it down, that's really what the book of Acts is all about. It's about accomplishing the Great Commission by making disciples. Look back at verse 21. After preaching the good news in Derby and making many disciples. You see, Paul and Barnabas were committed to disciple-making. To them, nothing else mattered. In fact, the primary command of the Great Commission, as it's presented in Matthew chapter 28, is to make disciples. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That was the bottom line for the church back then, and it's still the bottom line for the church today. It's all about making disciples, because that mission has not changed in 2,000 years. In fact, that's why we're still here it's why the church still exists. It's why we haven't been raptured yet. And it's why Jesus hasn't yet returned. See, there's a lot of mystery surrounding when Jesus will return. And as you know, many have written books and made ridiculous predictions about that. But there's only one opinion that counts. 
And the reality is Jesus already told us when he's coming back in Matthew chapter 24 when he said this. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. You see, the bottom line is Jesus will return when we're done making disciples. So the fact that we're still here is a clear indication that we've got more work to do because there's still more room at the great wedding banquet and therefore more invitations to distribute and we've been mandated to go out and deliver those invitations. You see, the Lord doesn't sustain us for potlucks and picnics, as nice as they are, and I enjoy those things. And I would even argue they're essential for healthy body life in the church, and we encourage those things. But they're not our primary purpose for being here right now. We'll get to enjoy those things much later when we get to glory. Our primary focus right now must be on making disciples. That's our mandate. But not only cross-culturally, but also locally, in our neighborhoods, and in our schools, and in our workplaces, and at the ball fields, and wherever we come in contact with unsaved people. And we've been commanded by Jesus to make disciples because it's always been the heart of God that people would turn from their sins and be saved. You see, the Bible tells us that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wants them to turn from their wicked ways so that they might live. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, it's the heart of God for us to climb into the trenches of the harvest fields and assist with gathering those whose hearts have been prepared to hear and receive the gospel. And I'm afraid that in recent decades, the church in America hasn't always done a fabulous job of that. We've been reluctant sometimes to get into the trenches and execute the mission because in many ways the church has been influenced by the culture rather than the culture being influenced by the church. And Paul and Barnabas knew the primary mission of the church was to make disciples. And we share that same mission. And in order to accomplish it, it means our primary ministry efforts must be externally focused. You see, our passage today reminds us that the ministry efforts of Paul and Barnabas took place outside the church walls not inside. They didn't live a life separated from the rest of the world. They went out in spite of rising opposition and turned the world upside down by sharing truth and making disciples. They got outside the church and into the trenches where ministry is often risky and much less predictable. And one of the greatest snares for the American church today is that we focus too many of our resources inwardly on ourselves. In fact, data shows that the typical American church invests over 80% of its resources inwardly on its own people, people that are already in the kingdom. And that's a bit out of balance because when a local church focuses too much inwardly, it sadly begins to decline. And church life cycle models demonstrate this. Because the true life of any church exists in its ability to reach out and gain new converts, leading unsaved people into the kingdom 
and then into the local church. That's the heart of God. Now, yes, we do need to help our own people grow by ministering to them and teaching them and helping them to grow in grace because that, too, is part of the disciple-making process, as we're going to see. But in doing so, we can't forfeit our calling to be a lighthouse to lost people and broken communities. And that's why I'm so excited that here at ACAC that we're focused on expanding our influence because it means getting outside of these church walls, independence on the Holy Spirit, in an effort to make new disciples by exposing them to truth and pointing the way into the kingdom. Something God has called all of us to engage in because everyone in the kingdom has disciple-making in their job description. We all own that one. And Paul and Barnabas were doing just that. They were active in the trenches and pursuing, really, the first new covenant version of expanded influence. One of the ministries here at ACAC that embodies this idea of getting outside the church walls, and we have many, many of them, I'm just going to highlight one, they do it in a very raw sense, is in an effort to make disciples, is church in the park. And as we saw in our ministry minute two weeks ago, they get out there into lost communities to simply share the gospel, to share Jesus with children and anyone else standing nearby that, that can hear it. And it's a very simple ministry, but it's one that's very near and dear to the heart of God. And it very much emulates what Paul and Barnabas were doing back then. You see, it's easy for us as the church to settle in and become comfortable with each other in our church family and focus most of our resources here because it's safe and it's protected and it's less risky. But we've got to figure out how to get out there because that's where the world is and that's where the lost people are. And we've got to figure out creative ways to take the gospel to them. Now, it's interesting to me because after making disciples in Derby, our passage tells us that Paul and Barnabas returned to three cities, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch of Pisidia. Now, these were not ordinary cities because these were cities that severely harassed and assaulted these guys previously. Now, I'm no genius. Many of you here know that. But I grew up in Brighton Heights on the north side. And if I ever walked through a neighborhood or down a street that displayed even a hint of potential harm, I avoided that place like the plague. I would never go back there. You didn't have to warn me twice because pain and I don't get along. But in spite of the known risks, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, where Paul was previously stoned and dragged out of town and left for dead. Then he wandered into Iconium, where they were previously forced to flee because a mob planned to attack and stone them there. And then they went back to Antioch of Pisidia, where an angry mob previously ran them out of town as well. Now, they went back through these cities. Why would they do that? Well, look back at verse 22. Paul and Barnabas returned to those places to strengthen the believers. And the ESV puts it this way, they strengthened the souls of the disciples. They were willing to go back through those cities and risk their lives because strengthening other believers is part of the disciple-making process. In fact, it's just 
it's equally as important as getting people saved. And Paul knew just how important that was. You see, leading someone to faith is just one part of the disciple-making recipe. We need to follow up new converts and connect them to the local church where the Word of God is preached so that they can become baptized and taught to obey everything that Jesus commanded us. That's how we make disciples. But Paul also understood that new believers were fragile. And among other things, they needed warned and protected from false teachers and false doctrines and even false Christs. And the same is true today. I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of junk out there being passed off as Christianity. And a lot of it's on TV where it's easily accessible and it appears very attractive. And sadly, some of that teaching has leaked its way into the local church, contaminating our witness and creating divisions within the body. I can remember when I came back to faith, came into faith in 1991, if I didn't have someone accessible to me, guiding me and answering the one million questions that I had on a daily basis, and I had them, I mean, I could have been easily deceived, or worse yet, fallen away. New believers don't naturally know how to navigate those minefields of deception. They need people like you and like me and the local church to help lead them along straight paths in accordance with the Word of God. So, like Paul and Barnabas, we need to go out of our way to strengthen the believers around us. And strengthening isn't just for new believers, because we all need strengthened from time to time. Because life has a way of beating us up and leaving us vulnerable and exposed. And we need each other to minister to the love and compassion of Christ in our times of need and desperation. And that's what a faith community is all about. And that's why a faith community is absolutely essential to healthy growth. Because there's strength in numbers, and collectively we can accomplish a lot more together and endure a lot more together than we ever can alone. And that's because we were never meant to live the Christian life in isolation. No matter what anyone else may say, God created Eve because it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And that's why gathering here consistently, weekly, and participating in growth groups, in women's Bible study groups, in men's groups is critical for a healthy church because we need each other and we learn from each other. So we can see why Paul and Barnabas risked their lives by re-entering those cities to strengthen the churches that they actually helped to establish because they knew it was critical to making and maintaining disciples. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to strengthen the believers. Look at the end of verse 22. They also encouraged them to continue in the faith, reminding them that we must suffer many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Why was it necessary for Paul to encourage the saints to continue in the faith? Well, first of all, it must have been his observation that not everybody does continue in the faith. Not everybody that prays the prayer and walks down the aisle and signs the card sticks it out over the long term and endures. 
especially when hardships and trials flare up, things that often accompany a new commitment to follow Jesus. And that's a candid reminder that kingdom life and suffering often go hand in hand. In fact, one seldom existed without the other. And Paul knew that. And many of you in this room today know that. And it's no different today than it was back in Paul's day. All you have to do is read the news to see that Christians continue to be singled out and persecuted and slaughtered in horrifying ways around the globe. But that's the way it's always been for followers of Jesus. It's life and death in the trenches. And it shouldn't come as any surprise because Jesus never offered us an easy way. Jesus came for many reasons. I actually listed them out once in a notebook right from Scripture. There's a lot of them. Filled a whole page. But none of them was to make life easy. And Paul reminds us that the road into the kingdom is paved with difficulty and turbulence. But it's always been that way. And it's always going to be that way until Jesus returns. And that's why Jesus warned us to count the cost before entering his kingdom. Because he knew the kingdom life was not going to be a walk in the park. In other words, he was saying, evaluate what you're about to get yourself into before you choose to follow me. Because in this world, you will have trouble. That's what the rich young ruler did. He chose not to follow and walked away sorrowing. Kingdom life is difficult. Life in the trenches is not easy. And believers are not immune from trouble. In fact, we walk around with targets on our back, which is why we need to put on the full armor of God every day. Because as we learned last week, the devil doesn't play. He seeks to destroy and I can hear Paul encouraging the local churches not to give up the faith despite the difficulty they were enduring. Because not only would it be worth it in the end, but it's through suffering and trials that God does some of his best work in us. Nobody likes suffering. Nobody enjoys trials. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, Lord, give me my fair share of hardships today. We don't have to do that because trials and hardships tend to find us anyway. It's part of kingdom life in the trenches. And when trials do show up on our doorstep, as they inevitably will for all of us, we have a strategic decision to make. Because suffering and trials can either draw us closer to God or they can distance us from Him. We can choose to trust and depend on Him or we can choose to blame him and depend on ourselves. The former will lead to peace and maturity and growth, but the latter will lead to disappointment and frustration and disillusionment. You see, suffering and trials, although painful at the time, can lead to joy and blessing if we cling to God and we're willing to learn the spiritual lessons that he makes available to us. In fact, Whenever we enter a trial of any kind, no matter how difficult, the first question we should ask is this. Lord, in spite of the pain, in spite of the difficulty, how can I learn and grow from this with your help? See, nobody knew that better than Paul. 
because he knew that suffering and kingdom are closely related. But he also knew that the wonderful grace of God was sufficient and far superior to any trial or hardship he would have to endure. When I first learned I had cancer three years ago, my sister Gail, who is a believer, she quickly responded in an email to me in two ways. The first thing she said to me was this, no lie, make sure your life insurance premiums are all paid up. <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> not what I expected, but practical. I'm a practical person. Secondly, she included an article by John Piper called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, I'm not ready for this. But I reluctantly read the article, and it made me realize that in spite of my impending trial, I had a decision to make. I had a choice. There was an opportunity for growth that God was going to make available to me. But I would have to choose to embrace it. And the reality is, is we're all going to face severe trials at one time or another. Trials that will test our faith and maybe even cause us to question God and his goodness. In fact, maybe you're there right now. If so, I would encourage you to think of it as an opportunity for growth in spite of the difficulty and a chance to transform a liability into an asset. And let me remind you what Peter said in chapter 5 of his first letter. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wow. Kingdom life in the trenches is not without its rewards. God has your back in spite of the difficulty. And those who choose to persevere and grow through suffering and trials will be blessed by God for the endurance. And afterwards, you're usually those who were better equipped to minister to others during their times of hurting and need. And God knows this. And this is why he permits us to experience difficulty and does protect us from everything. But it's also why we need other believers to surround us and encourage us to keep the faith during those times of testing, just like Paul and Barnabas did. When I was meeting with my team of doctors three years ago to finalize my cancer treatment, they were telling me all about what they were going to do to me and all the side effects that I would experience, and it wasn't going to be pleasant. And then they told me this. They said, George, we only have one good shot to get rid of this. There is no plan B, so we're going to give it everything we got. We're going all in. Brothers and sisters, we only get one good shot at this life. There will be no redos. There is no plan B. We are God's plan, so we better give it everything we have, just like Paul and Barnabas did. They were all in. We've got to be willing to live life in the trenches, focused on every God-given opportunity to make disciples, in spite of the trials and the opposition that will try to get in the way. Because we don't want to look back one day with regret 
and wish we had done things differently. Paul and Barnabas knew why they were here. They were here to make disciples, and we have that same mission. Let me close with this. Climbing in the trenches isn't something we do alone. Because not only do we have each other, but we have the one who spoke the universe into existence right by our side. I mean, he is our trench mate, and nothing is too difficult for him. He's big. He's the source of our equipping. He's the source of our strength. He's the source of our courage. He's the source of our endurance. The Holy Spirit in us and through us is our sufficiency for kingdom work in the trenches. We are not alone. Hallelujah. So let's be committed to making disciples. If we do, we'll set in motion the coming of the King and usher us closer to the next life, the one we've all been waiting and preparing for. Where suffering and trials will be no more, and we'll get to trade in these old broken-down bodies for high-end upgrades. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement of Paul and Barnabas. I thank you, Lord, that they were all in. And Lord, you call us to make disciples just as you called them. Lord, equip us to do the same by the power and fullness of your spirit. We can't do it alone. Lord, climb in the trenches with us. And we thank you for what you're going to do. Give us plenty of opportunity in the coming weeks to keep our eyes open and to look for those God-given opportunities to see who you present before us, Lord, that we can share a good word with them. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.